Everybody and welcome to another edition of Two Brain Radio with Sean Woodland. On today's episode, I talk with three-time CrossFit Games competitor, training staff member, and owner of CrossFit Max Effort, Zach Forrest. Two Brain Radio with Sean Woodland is brought to you by Two Brain Business. For free advice and tips from best-selling author Chris Cooper, visit twobrainbusiness.com slash blog. Today, Zach and I discuss some of the things that led to him having to close two of his locations in Las Vegas and the lessons he learned from the whole ordeal, his experience competing at the CrossFit Games, and the time he lost his pants while coaching at a level one certificate course. I certainly do not want to miss that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Zach, thanks so much for taking the time to do this, man. How you doing? Absolutely. I'm doing, uh, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay, thanks. Um, usually we start with uh, the CrossFit stuff, but because of what's going on with a couple of your gyms, I want to start more on the business side of things. Cool. You owned two separate facilities. You had CrossFit Max Effort and CrossFit West Vegas, and they both Correct. have shut down. Right. Why yep. did you have to close the doors on those facilities? So uh, I'll start with West Vegas because it's typically for me, the easiest, the most simple to explain. So we had been operating in the facility for a good amount of time. And um, the city decided to change the ruling on some of the zoning and uh, operation laws within our space. So we were in a very unique space, actually the only place in the city of Las Vegas to be zoned the way it is. Um, And it it was uh, business tech. And we had gotten cleared to be there. Um, we didn't need a special use permit or anything. And it, it's really, it was, it's a really odd zoning. Like for instance, an indoor shooting range could have also been in the same space that we were, but then it was also light manufacturing and textile. It was very, very weird, but the space suited our needs. We moved in, we had been operating for a man, a year maybe. And, um, the city came back to us and they're like, okay, we're redoing the regulations and uh, you're no longer able to stay there. And I'm like, well, can't you like grandfather us in or something like that? And they said, no. Um, so that was a pretty big deal. They said, if you want to stay there, you have to get a special use permit. And that obviously costs money to apply for and you have to jump through some hoops. So I'm like, okay, I'll play this game. Don't want to upset anybody. Went to my, um, my representative, the, uh, the district representative, the councilwoman, and spoke to her about it. And we got all the paperwork in order and all this stuff. And about three months later, I was in front of a hearing with the city council trying to appeal the zoning regulation. And they denied me, basically. Even going through the special use permit process and everything, they were just like, you know what? Uh, you Your business doesn't fit the, our vision for that uh, mm-hmm. that complex. And so I'm like, so you're just going to shut me down? And they said, yep, I'm sorry. And it didn't help that while we had been operating there, there had been some noise complaints um, from just one particular person. And this particular person, I have no evidence of this. I'm, this is this is pretty much just me speculating, but they, I'm pretty sure they're well-connected within the local um, government. He, he comes from a family with old money out here and, uh, you know, he probably pulled some strings, but again, I have no hard evidence of that. It's just my speculation, but I just feel like the city was a little bit unfair in that entire situation, but regardless, we had to shut our doors down or shut, uh, close our doors. So that kind of sucked. What did you learn from that whole process? 
Um, yeah, like I try and, and that's the thing, like I try and take away lessons learned from every situation, win or lose. And in this one, I'm, I've talked to lawyers. I've talked to, um, the, the people down at the zoning office and city workers. And they're just like, you know what? This was just straight up bad luck. Like there's nothing you can do. Like it's maybe don't put so much trust in, um, in local government, I guess, or local policy, but that's kind of, I feel like that's jaded and that's a mm-hmm. bad outlook because like there was literally nothing I could do. I could sue the city of Las Vegas. That's what my lawyer said. And you might come out on top, but like who wins a suit against the city of Las Vegas and how much money do you want to waste on that? So I don't, I don't actually know what lessons I learned from that other than you just got to take it on the chin sometimes. <laughs> when, yeah. when you look back, <clears throat> excuse me, at the beginning of this process, <clears throat> what do you think are some things that you could have done differently to possibly avoid this outcome? If anything, that's and exactly. And that's what I kept asking myself. The only thing I think I might have been able to do, and this, I don't know who would have had the foresight to do this would have been to go and talk to the guy that had been complaining. Uh, but then again, I have no idea how big of a poll he had, if he was actually the cause mm-hmm. or the deciding factor in the city's decision. I'm sure he had some influence on it. Um, which could have been negated if I had the foresight to go over and, and just randomly pick one of my neighbors and be like, Hey, is everything okay? He like came out of nowhere. And that's the thing. It just, mm-hmm. all of a sudden he was upset with us being there. So it was kind of like I was blindsided by the whole thing. And I hate, like, it sounds like I'm making excuses for myself or um, I'm like saying there was nothing I could have done. I just haven't figured out what I could have done. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe, Talk to the councilwoman again, Ms. Tarkanian, and and try and find other alternative solutions. Like we tried soundproofing for that guy. We tried, uh, they wanted me to completely change my business operations. They're like, okay, what we don't like is the fact that you guys are running outside and that you guys are dropping weights. If you guys were like a Pilates studio or a little bit more high end, I can, I constantly remember them using high uh, the term high end gym, boutique gym studio we might have a little bit more leeway, but because we're CrossFit, I think they just didn't like it. That's man. That's crazy. Uh, high it, end. It was. <laughs> Let's move on to, I was like high end. I'm like, I, I <laughs> you know what I charge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know, like you charge more than lifetime fitness, which is where you're going with this arcane. Like, come on, give me a break. <laughs> Your, let's move on to CrossFit Max Effort because that opened in 2011, but that also recently right. closed. Why did you have to shut right. the doors on that one? So that was a more of a um, that was more of a strategical decision on my part. Um, basically, what had happened was our lease had come to an end uh, as of December 31st, 2018, and I was talking to the building owners and. They were completely willing to keep us around month to month. They did not want to re-sign me under a long-term lease because they wanted to sell the building that we were in. They're asking $4 million, and it's a standalone building with two tenants, myself and another business. And um, it's a pretty large building, industrial. But it is one and a half miles south of where the new Raiders Stadium is going. Mm, okay. And so these the, the landowners, the, the building owners were trying to capitalize on the market. And I completely understand why they were trying to sell the building. Um, it was outside of my range uh, of being able to afford $4 million. I didn't want to take on the risk. Um, I would have had to take on an investor to get the loan just to 
get be able to buy the building. So it was just that wasn't a good option for me unless the uh, investor wanted to be a partner and go into expansion, but yada, yada, yada. Anyway, uh, they were looking to sell the building, but they were like, hey, we don't really have anybody lined up. You're going to go month to month. We're going to keep you at the same rate um, and, and don't worry about it. I'm like, okay. And I had already been looking for a space for six to eight months, about actually eight months um, in case I needed to move. And I was anticipating on moving, but the market out here, because of two major factors, the Raiders stadium and then uh, the legalization of marijuana, the, the industrial market out here is, or at that point was completely crazy. You can't find an industrial space between 8,000 and 15,000 square feet to lease. Like you, you might be able to buy one, but you can't find it to lease. My, my space was 16,000. So I'm like, even if I go to 8,000, I'm cutting my square footage in half. So I found an 8,000 square foot and the rate was double what I was paying. Actually it was over double what I was paying. So I was like, I will be paying more for half the space because that's what the market is at right now. Um, I was paying 75 cents, uh, plus cams at, uh, at the space that I was currently in and the space that, uh, was our best option at that time was asking a dollar 50 plus cams and more restriction on what we could do. They said, you can't run outside, yada, 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 a bunch of stuff. And I was like, okay, well maybe I'll just buy a bunch of assault runners and we'll figure it out. Right. Um, so while I'm in the process of doing this, the building owners came back to me and they said, hey, we sold the building. We're in escrow. We're going to be closing next week. Here's your 30-day notice. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, what? Like you told me I, you would give me at least a 60 or 90-day notice and that you would tell me when you were working with someone to buy. And they're like, yeah, this guy came out of nowhere. He's, a, he's another local business owner right up the road. And he just made the decision that he's going to buy the building. Like he didn't even negotiate with us. He just came in and said, I'm buying this building. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> what am I going to say? They, they, the guy offered them exactly what they wanted. And he, the new building owners were in our space like the next day. And I, so I'm starting to talk to these guys like, hey, do you mind holding off on moving in? Like give me an extra month. And they said, the most I can give you is a month. We'll give you until like February um, 1st because this was happening at the beginning of January mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, and it was just, it was, it was basically the last 30 to 45 days of us being in that space was just chaos. I was, I was torn between, okay, do I move into this, what I considered a financial death trap of 8,000 square feet that was about a mile down the road from us. Um, the building was in worse condition. They had more restrictions on what I could do operationally. And the, the price was, more expensive. My expenses would have been going up. So I'm like, if I were in best case scenario, I retain all my members and I move over there. And now I I'm, I'm downsizing, but I'm not becoming more efficient doing so. And they want a, a minimum five year lease. So I'm like, I really don't think even to stay open, I do not think that this is going to be a long-term solution for us. Mm -hmm. Um, that's going to allow us to be successful. And so I made the decision to just shut the doors down and wait until I had a place that I could move into, be happy with, and 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 continue to flourish. So it, it was it was a hard pill to swallow, and the hardest part about it was my ego. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the lesson that I learned there was even though the, the choice may seem like it, it could be the death of you, like when you have to look at all the other options, always, always, always stay away from the emotional decision. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to stay in operations. I did not want to quit. Like I have 300 people that like they, they felt homeless. They're like, where are we supposed to go work out now? And I'm like, hey, you know what? There's 30 some odd other gyms in town. Let me do some research and let me talk to some owners and see who can take care of you the best. And I gave them my suggestions. Um, and it was just, it was, it was like, I w- I felt like I was abandoning a family. Yeah. And that alone would have been enough to keep me making bad decisions. And I had to do some soul searching and have to, had to pull back really, really hard to, to be like, you know what, in the end, this is going to be better for everybody. Mm-hmm. You because mentioned if the staff, if I'm sorry, the staff is unhappy. Well, I was just going to say if the staff is unhappy in the new space, the business isn't doing well in the mm-hmm. new space. Yeah. It's like, that's going to eventually get to the community and the members and the, my customers are going to be unhappy. They're going to feel that. So I'm like, it, it all starts at the top. You can't go somewhere where the, the owner and the leadership are, are completely unhappy with this scenario and the situation and expect the customers of the community to feel different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned so about some, sorry about bringing on an, an investor. Why was that not right. a good option for you? Well, because <laughs> so if we talk about in the financials and, and what we're looking at um, as far as down the road and exit plan for me as a business owner, uh, it, it was really coming down to two things. And this is why I made the decision. One, if I take on an investor, am I going to be able to, I'm either going to have to give up a ton of equity, which I really didn't want because then that just messes with my, my exit strategy for selling the business and moving on to other things. But um, I would have to expand beyond what I was just to make money, enough profit to buy out the investor at a later date. And I was looking at the rate of return of that profit and how, how, large I would need to be in order to meet that rate to get someone out in the time frame that I thought was reasonable and it wasn't feasible it was it, I wasn't willing to do it I'll just say that I made a decision I was like I don't want to do that um, so looking at the numbers I would have needed to get an investor um, on board for anywhere from 350 to 450 thousand might have been able to pull it off with 300 thousand and the valuation of the company being at a million dollars, I'm like, okay, so we're looking at, if, if, if I can't do a good job of negotiating, I'm looking at 30 to 40%, depending on what they come in with. Uh, and as far as equity is concerned, that's a, that's a big chunk. Yeah. Is it majority? Is it controlling? Absolutely not. But it's still a big chunk. And I'm thinking, okay, what does that look like? That looks like me getting an investor and then me taking that money to take out a loan from the SBA for $4 million so I can buy the building. Upside is I now have real estate. I now have a hard asset that that's going to appreciate in value. Look at the markets going up in value probably. Right. Um, and I now also have the responsibility of managing that. Um, the, it's better for the business obviously to be in the building that you own, but I don't know what the trade off is as far as, 
um, managing, because I've never done it, managing two spaces. It's a 28,000 square foot building. I did not necessarily want to be a landlord. There was no way we were going to be able to do enough business to pull off 28,000 square feet. I just wanted to stay in the 16,000 square feet that I had, which means I have to rent out the front of the building, which means I now have to either pay someone to manage that or or um, manage it myself. And I, I had no desire to do that. Mm-hmm. So there was a whole bunch of small factors like that. Yeah. I mean, they're not really small that I had to take into consideration. I was like, okay, not worth it for me. It's not, it's not filling my vision for what I want to be able to do. And that was, that made that decision relatively yeah. easy once I considered all those things. Where are you now in the process of restarting that gym? So it's funny because now I'm going I'm to have to rework some things. Um, I'm open to taking on an investor because I still feel like the, the brand is relatively, um, strong, but if I'm going to reopen and I say if, because I haven't fully committed to, um, to doing this and because the market is still crazy, there are a couple prospective locations, but I haven't pinned down anything. If I were to do this and how I would do this would be different. It would need to change, uh, in the sense that I would not offer the, I don't know if I want to use the classic, the word classic or the word original CrossFit affiliate model because the market is changing. It is um, developing quickly. And I think that um, the original model for CrossFit affiliates is not that it can't be profitable. It's just it's not going to continue to thrive. So I would have to change some things and take on an investor with the sense or with the goal of expanding outside the city of Las Vegas. Why do you think that the old model of an affiliate won't continue to thrive? You know what? I should change the way I said that. I should. Um, now that I, I, it, it won't change, it won't um, thrive for, how do I, how do I phrase this? I don't want to buy a job. I think the op- uh, the operator owner model, owner operator mm-hmm. model is effective if you, love doing what you're doing every single day and you love being in the trenches and you want to wake up and you want to coach, even if you just want to coach like two to three classes a day and, you know, continue to work in the gym. I don't want that. I didn't want that. So I'm looking at how much money can, especially in the Las Vegas market, how much money total revenue can a gym pull in um, versus how much you need to uh, pay skilled labor versus expenses and all this stuff. And I don't think that in this market, um, an owner operator gym can provide enough income uh, for me to do what I want to do. Okay. So that's why I was like, okay, I'm going to need to, uh, I'm going to need to expand and, and start a different way of running a gym. And it's like I said, I should have, I shouldn't have said the way that I sure. originally said it. I think uh, if you are happy coaching and running the day-to-day operations, a gym can support that and pay you definitely a livable wage and definitely a, a mm-hmm. good amount of money to support a family. If, but uh, I want more. <laughs> yeah. Assuming that you know, you're able to start uh, another location, you mentioned how you had to send your, your old members to other gyms. How do you get them back? Um. <laughs> Uh, I feel like that's a trap question, yeah. John. <laughs> um, I, I, with 
risk of sounding arrogant, I open. I open mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Uh, and that's all I do. Uh, I'm not, and, and that's not me saying like, yeah, that's, that. Uh, I got to be careful how I answer this because I do love the affiliate owners sure. uh, and the community that we have out here. But at the same time, I, I know why we were mm-hmm. the best and I know why, um, why we had a, a strong community and a strong yeah. gym. And I, I feel like it's very difficult for the other gyms to, or for any gym to replicate what it is that I had and what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it's not possible. I just don't see it happening. I don't see the realization that needs to occur, um, for it to happen. Uh, and I don't, I don't know, like, how much you want me to go into that? I feel like I would get them back just by by opening up and by virtue of Max Effort is back in town. Yeah, these people loved they they had it was their second home, so mm-hmm. third home even like. It well, was, yeah, uh, and I think there is yeah. a loyalty there I mean, that most people have to their gyms at whatever the original one was that you know they want it. They, like you said, it feels like home, so I don't think you're off base right. there. Yeah, right. And I, I mean, I wouldn't directly approach anybody. I'm not going to poach members, obviously. Sure. Like that's terrible, and I'm not going to to directly call out any, anyone mm-hmm. or, uh, have a marketing campaign that's directed at that. It's, it's literally just open, make it known to the community that we're open. And if someone's happier at where they're at currently, uh, versus where they, the happiness that they had with us before, mm-hmm. then they should stay there. Right. So, yeah. Um, it's funny that you asked that question because that was asked, uh, of me a while back, like people were worried. They're like, aren't you worried that like, if you reopen, you're just not going to be able to, mm-hmm. to rebuild, to get back to where you were. And I said, absolutely not. Yeah. There's, I'm not worried about that at all. Well, I hope yeah. it works out, man. Let's, uh, let's go back now. And when did you first discover CrossFit? So, uh, 2005. Wow. 2005. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the Navy. Um, and Dave Castro beat me over the head with CrossFit. what was it about it that that hooked you um that's a good question you know what i was actually pretty resistant to it for a while uh so we we had used it and uh i'm not sure are you familiar sean with jim jones i've heard of of, yes okay mark twight and jim jones so Mm -hmm. i found crossfit i want to say in second phase of buds um and and, but we didn't really do it because they weren't allowed to call it CrossFit. So we right. would do some weird workouts where we would do uh, on the minute, every minute for 30 minutes, five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, 15 air squats, and then run into the, into the surf, hit the surf, and then come back and start all over again. And that was miserable. <laughs> I couldn't even keep down Gatorade during that workout. I was like throwing up as I was working out. Wow. Um, and th- it was just one of those things where, I had no idea what we were doing. I just knew that these were the hardest workouts that I had ever done in my entire <laughs> life. And I expected it. I was like, this is, this is what buds must be. And I mean, this was in addition to our regular like PT stuff, like mm-hmm. running and yeah. Um, and then in SQT, um, I remember Dave asking, he was like, Hey, does anybody want to do a, uh, a uh, fitness course over the weekend? It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And everybody's in the class is looking around like, no, we don't, we don't want to do this. And he's like, okay, I'm asking for volunteers. And when he gives you that look, it's not, he's asking right. for volunteers. He's like, if, <laughs> I if know that one of you assholes don't raise your hand, 
<laughs> you're all going to pay. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, crap. So, um, and I went through uh, what I found out later to be a level one course with uh, Greg, Dave, and Nicole. And um, it was just a, it was a turning point in realization of like what fitness is. Mm-hmm. And even after that though, like when I got to the team, they were doing Jim Jones. And I was like, this is kind of like CrossFit. And I had to research and look at Mark Twight's background and involvement with, with, uh, with CrossFit. And I was like, okay, so it's basically the same thing. So we did Jim Jones training or CrossFit style training about twice a week. And that was in addition to the regular running that I would do on my own and like bench press and like the weightlifting. Cause I was a small guy and I needed to get bigger or so everybody told me. Right. right. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I moved to Vegas, um, later on that, I was like, okay, I'm just going to fully commit to doing CrossFit. And that was like 2008. Then how did you get involved with the training staff? So training staff, um, what had happened was we hosted a level one mm-hmm. at, um, at CrossFit Las Vegas. And I remember, I think it was Pat Barber. I remember talking to Pat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this was around 2009. And just picking his brain about the, the job and what he was doing. And I was like, you know, this sounds pretty cool. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, check this out and see what, it, see what I need to do. And I reached out to Dave and he was like, we have this new course coming online, uh, level two, take this and, uh, and, and talk to me afterwards. I was like, okay, cool. So I went to a level two um, and I remember Andy Stump, who <laughs> was a, a guy that yeah. I had been uh, at Buds with. Um, he was one of my instructors at Buds and uh, Nicole Carroll and Freddie Camacho. And uh, I think that was it. They were putting us through a level two and it was Carl Paoli, Jason Kalipa, John wow. Wellborn was there. Yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. And, yeah. um, and I had worked with those guys a couple of times and I remember walking in and sitting down to, to find out whether or not I, I passed my level two. And Andy just looks at me. He has his sunglasses on inside, of course. And he just looks at me and he goes, well, you screwed that up, didn't you? Like, holy cow. And uh, Nicole was like, no, you passed. Don't worry about it. And then, um, so passing level two that weekend, I reached out to Dave. I was like, hey, I passed the level two. Cool. What's the next step? What do you want me to do? And he's like, okay, cool. I'll set you up. Uh, with a course. And I interned at a level one in uh, Reno and then interned at another level one in Las Vegas and then started working them. Everybody, everyone I've ever talked to who's on the training staff, they all have one sort of crazy story. What is your one Mm. crazy story from your time as a, as a member of the seminar staff? Oh, geez. Should it, should it be training related or not? It can be anything related. I mean, I've heard well, about fights. I've heard about you know, all. Kind, I've heard about you know, okay, um, people getting propositioned. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I think, and and I want you. I want to be extremely clear. The training staff is amongst the most professional people no I've ever got gotten the privilege no to work with. Um, and the family senses it matches that of the SEAL community. Um, and <laughs> there was one year when at the staff trainer summit where we all get together and we, uh, we talk about, um, how we deliver the courses. I, that one of the after parties, I don't know what happened, but I lost my pants. <laughs> and okay. I don't know how it happened. I, I mean, I woke up the next morning, I was in the hotel lobby mm-hmm. 
And when I say morning, it was probably like 4 a.m. or something like that. And um, I didn't have any pants on. And I think I remember getting a text from Hobart. Was it James or someone? And they're like, hey, were those your pants in the elevator? <laughs> and I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so, yeah, it, they, they, like to, they like to play hard. And, yeah. um, and that's, that's, that's not a uh, characteristic of me to get blackout drunk where I start losing clothes. Um, <laughs> but I woke up. Oh, I was wet, too. I, it was like I had gone in the pool or something. Wow. Like, and, and I think I remember the, uh, the hotel staff not being very kind to me that morning when I tried to like be like, <laughs> I can't hey, where's imagine breakfast? Why. Well, I woke up and I think one of the things I asked, them, I was like, Hey, where's breakfast? And they said, sir, you need to have pants on first. <laughs> and I was like, Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Uh, you first competed at the games in 2009. That was the last year at the ranch. What do you remember about that atmosphere? Um, holy cow. That was, I was in such awe. I was so happy to be there that the ranch at that time seemed like I was like, man, this, this might as well be the Olympics. Like it was small, it was intimate. And like, I had heard about something called the Woodstock of fitness, had no idea what Woodstock was, had to look it up. Um, and I, I remember being there and just seeing what I thought was a very large crowd and being like, Holy cow, like this is a real thing. I just thought it was going to be some Mm -hmm. like, like backyard events yeah. and, uh, and, and, and going from my only, uh, experience up to that point in cross the competition being the regional that you had to qualify in, which mm-hmm. our regional was in Flagstaff. It was, in, it was at CrossFit Flagstaff. Um, not a small gym, but I mean, it was, it was, it was like, uh, it looked to be about a very large CrossFit class. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to do some workouts today and we'll see what happens. And then I got to the ranch and I was like, holy cow, it was, it was amazing. It was for me, it was just like, it was inspirational. I was yeah. like, look at all these people that, that want to, want to compete in fitness. Um, and that was just 2009. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, but at the same time, it was very humble. It was very much like, uh, like not archaic, but like, um, I don't know how to explain it. It was like the, the Woodland games or the, not the, what are those, uh, the Highland, not the games. Highland games? Well, the Highland games, but what's like the lumberjack yeah, lumberjack uh, games. Yeah. Oh, lumberjack games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's your it's last name, Sean. Throw me in. Yeah. <laughs> your game. <laughs> um, yeah. I was, yeah. It was very raw, and I was mm-hmm. just, I was, I was, I totally fell in love with it. It was great. Fast forward then to your final appearance in 2013. That's at now the uh, StubHub Center. How had yeah. things? What was the biggest change that you noticed between you know 2009 and 2013? The biggest thing that I, that I saw was the the for the competition it was no longer a gathering of people i mean it still was mm-hmm. but i was like amazed i was completely blown away with the medical staff the the uh, athlete support the crowd control the logistics that were happening the road crew that showed up it was just it was amazing to me to see the management of it all and the behind the scenes stuff and and it, it kind of you realize everybody is there in support of the competition in support of the show in support of the athletes, but it does not feel like that. You feel like you are part of something bigger. Like you, 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 you legitimately feel like you're part of 
a movement that's changing the world. Yeah. When you get to see the behind the scenes stuff at the events like that, it's it's amazing to me. What's your fondest CrossFit Games memory from your time as a competitor? Oh, I don't have any. <laughs> really? <that> <laughs> uh, no. Um, <laughs> probably being in the in the tennis stadium. Yeah. Anything in the tennis stadium is uh, is pretty amazing. Just the atmosphere. I don't think it can be duplicated. I don't think it can be replicated. Uh, maybe at Madison in the uh, in the Coliseum, but the the tennis stadium was uh, intimate, but for lack of a better term, like the pits. Mm-hmm. It was it was it was very cool, um, and just just being down on that floor. Anytime I was down on that floor, uh, it felt felt great. Um, so I, I don't think there was any one event that I specifically cherish more than the other. It was just the entire cumulative experience. Why did you decide that, you know what, I'm done being a competitor? Uh, because I wanted to focus on the business. Yeah. Um, because I wanted to focus on the business and because I realized that uh, with the sport growing and maturing, that the amount of dedication it took to mm-hmm. be uh, at that level was beyond what I wanted to give. And, um, and it, I, I enjoy business. I enjoy um, seeing something grow. I, I, I like working on my own skills and I like working on um, bettering myself. And I think that I've started to value um, outside growth a little bit more. Not, yeah. not that I don't do personal growth, but like seeing, seeing something being built and seeing how it affects the lives of others mm-hmm. is, is one of the coolest things in the world to me. And that's why yeah. I made a decision. Yeah, that's it. You've been a competitor. You've been a Navy SEAL. How did those two things help you in your career as a business person? Um, I think it gives you some objective uh, perspective. I mean, to to do well in both of those things uh, or all of those things uh, as a competitor, uh, special operations, uh, being part of a team, and, and also a business owner, you need the ability to um, – know when to put your ego aside, when to leverage your ego as a tool, uh, and when to uh, take emotion out of the equation uh, in order to make some hard decisions. And you also need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just a physical sense. It's emotionally and, and um, mentally and intellectually. Like There's fatigue on all levels, and nothing great ever occurred by someone staying in their comfort zone. So you just need to be okay with the fact that sometimes the grind is uncomfortable. Sometimes the training is uncomfortable. Sometimes the decision is uncomfortable. Sometimes the conversation that you have to have with that person is uncomfortable, but you have to be willing to go through it and know that it's going to be better after the fact, if you do it right. You have coached people all over the world in your own gym as well. What's been your proudest moment as a coach? There's a couple. That stand out in my head. Um, two female athletes on two certain occasions. Actually, man, there's so many that are coming back to me now. <laughs> um, but that popped in my head. Um, I remember one athlete after the acquisition of uh, 702 CrossFit West Vegas. I had been working with her for maybe four months. And she she was unable to run anything past like a very slow jog. Mm-hmm. And the first time during a workout that she was able to run a full 400 meter lap 
without stopping. And it wasn't a jog. It was like a legitimate run. Uh, I, I teared up and I was just like, holy cow, that was incredible. I was like, Don, nice job. You blew me away. Let's keep this going. Yeah. Um, and it was just, and she was happy and she, she almost didn't even realize what she had done. Uh, it was so cool. Um, and then another time was when, uh, Annabelle got her first pull up. Yeah. (laughs) She had been working really, really hard and, uh, had her on some bands and had her on some ring rows and and gave her some extra work to do. And she's dedicated. She's consistent. She just, she's, she's a workhorse and she's a pit bull and she loves, loves doing more and more and more. And so I had to work with her to temper, uh, that passion and focus it. And, um, she eventually got her first pull up combining that with some dedication on the nutrition side. And that was pretty amazing. That's really cool, man. Uh, I, I think everyone has those moments and it's, it's weird how you take probably more pleasure in their accomplishments than you do in your own. So I'm, I'm 100%, yeah. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Final question. What has been the best part about this whole CrossFit journey for you? That's a, that's a hard question. Um, the best part has been kind of getting a better sense of self Mm -hmm. by interacting with some pretty amazing humans. I mean, there's so much good that comes from, from owning a gym, from coaching people, from competition, from exercise in general, specifically CrossFit. Uh, it, it's it's hard to pin down, but I would say because I've been blessed and so incredibly lucky to have um, experiences with some of the best coaches in the world, um, who often uh, also happen to be some of the best people in the world, to and and my own members, that it's you know that quote where it's like you are the sum of the five people you surround yourself yeah. with the most. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's like there's something about CrossFit that inherently good people involved Mm -hmm. and and the fact that I can be regularly exposed to those people has just elevated every aspect of my life and I I don't want to take that for granted and I've learned to appreciate human interaction uh, even if for the most simple fact that I I will always learn from it so um, either through win or lose it's like I've, I've done nothing but grow from being involved in CrossFit physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, spiritually to a certain degree. I'm not really religious, but I know that it's there. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm thankful for. Well, Zach, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, great conversation. And I want to wish you the best of luck uh, in your future endeavors. I hope that you, uh, you get the gym back up and running again soon. Thank you, Sean. I really appreciate that. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Once again, I would like to thank Zach Forrest for taking the time to speak with me. You can follow Zach on Instagram. He is at Zach, that's Z-A-C-H underscore A-F. Two Brain Radio with Sean Woodland is brought to you by Two Brain Business. To learn how to generate profit and take your business to the next level, check out Founder, Farmer, Tinker, Thief by Chris Cooper. It's available now on Amazon. And if you want me to read it to you, I literally do that in the audio version. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you again soon.